no better fitting circumstance than moving into talking about hindrances this evening. Uh, you know, I really welcome the opportunity and thank you for um, being here, which then gives me the opportunity to speak to the hindrances, which is one of my favorite content components of the Dhamma to speak to. In many ways, I'm a pretty simple person, and for me, the practice, um, in terms of my practice, being guided by some of the foundational components of the Dhamma and the practice. And uh, for me, uh, the, the hindrances are constantly providing an opportunity for me to engage practice uh, in a way that's expanding my capacities for accessing freedom more and more and more. So one of my favorite sayings, um, and I don't know if it's from one of the suttas or one of the stories, but one of my favorite, just short four words, no mud, no lotus. So for me, like the lotus is really a very, very beautiful flower. And um, for those of you that don't know, um, they are flowers that their roots are ground, they grow up from the mud at the bottom of a lake. Um, and it, it sends, the, the, the roots send the shoot all the way up to the top and then the flower sits on top of the water on the lotus petals. And without the nourishment, recognize that word, and nutrients, recognize that word, that come from the mud, the lotus flower is unable to find its full self-expression. So, in the two groups that um, I sat with today, I know there's a lot of mud being slung around and uh, hoping that this will bring a little bit of spaciousness to um, continue on this journey that we're on with a little more spaciousness and maybe a little less uh, suffering and maybe a little less uh, delusion and agitation about what's happening. So when we're not clinging to what we want, as simple as it may seem, but we forget life is much easier. Although the events of life may be painful to bear at times, we can accept the pain without adding suffering. Rather than demanding that things turn out the way we want them to, we can surrender to life, even though it often fails to deliver what we would hope. As a result, we can be at peace with ourselves in the present moment, and we can move towards our goals without contraction. The Buddha's instructions to abandon clinging translates into caring without demanding, loving without imposing conditions, and moving towards our goals without attachment to outcome. Approaching goals with this attitude or state of mind allows us to care, to interact and take action in our jobs, in our relationships and in the greater world and still have a calm mind and a peaceful loving heart. Our life becomes based on being in the moment rather than on the outcome of that moment. Being fully present in the moment becomes the most essential value and an orientation for our lives. It allows us to be in the world of goals and actions without being defined by it. It is a major step toward liberating the mind. Clinging is suffering. Clinging to what we want is like being oftentimes caught in a vice or a swamp. The Buddha said, one who knows clinging and non-clinging knows all the Dharma. One of the main impediments to clear seeing and non-clinging is what the Buddha described as the hindrances or nirbharana, 
that cloud the mind and prevent us from knowing the cause of our suffering. Now, I'm just making this up. I don't know if it's any meaning, but it was interesting to me that the hindrances are known as nirvarana. And oftentimes what we seek is nirvana. I don't know if there's a relationship to that. It's something I'll have to get Eugene to give me some coaching on because he probably knows or at least will make it up if he doesn't. <laughs> the first hindrance is sensual desire or kamatanda, which is the mind simply wanting something pleasurable. The second is ill will or viapada, in which the mind is filled with dislike. The third, tinamita, is sloth and torpor, in which the mind is either too sleepy or too apathetic to see clearly. The fourth, restlessness and worry, are udachak kukachak. It's when the mind is too anxious to be able to stay steady. So you all know you are inspiring me because I am reading Polly and that is not something I do. So if I mispronounced anything, please excuse me and I am totally open to correction. The fifth and considered by many to be the most difficult hindrance is that of skeptical doubt. Vikicha, in which one lacks the faith in oneself to stay mindful of what is truly, really true and to act skillfully. For me, I call doubt the mother of all hindrances because it stops us from ever beginning to let loose of clinging. Doubt freezes the mind and undercuts our ability to cope with all the other hindrances. Oftentimes, these hindrances can be experienced singularly or multiple hindrances, which is often called a hindrance attack. Anyone familiar with that? Yeah, shows up. When the mind isn't obscured by hindrances, attachment doesn't arise, and our mind is willing to be just with what is. One is not caught in wanting anything, wanting to become anything, or wanting to get rid of anything. All of us have undoubtedly experienced free states of mind numerous times in our life already. But if we're not mindful when it is occurring, the impact is minimal. Through mindfulness, one feels its wholesomeness and are drawn to do the things that encourage its arising more often. In those moments in which our minds are free from hindrances, we are not in a reactive state. We see things more clearly and have access to intuitive wisdom. They do not define our existence. They are merely characteristics of our mind states, ever-changing as they arise and pass. So by now, most or all of us have come upon many of these forces in the mind which can make it difficult to stay attentive to the present moment experience. These forces run the gamut from weak to powerful, and we have been speaking indirectly, maybe, um, to that since we began here. This invitation and support in developing and cultivating the skill and mastery of presencing presence more often than not. What we all have experienced to varying degrees is that we are hampered in our ability to remain mindful, to develop concentration, and to have clear insight. Our attention is pulled in many directions other than where we wish it to land and interferes with our effort to meditate. Even when we have the best of intentions to stay focused and present, these forces can propel us into states of preoccupation and distracted thinking. The good news is these forces and challenges offer an opportunity for the deepening of practice 
and skill as meditators and are not bad distractions or personal failings. It is a part of the path of practice to be mindful of them. These forces can serve us by forming the basis for cultivating awareness and wisdom. So for me, these hindrances actually, I think I've said this to a few of you all or um, some of my colleagues perhaps, that actually the hindrances are welcome because when it's active and as you begin to work with them, it means that your practice is really present and enlivened and emboldened. So they're actual, and it's normative, it's actually part of the process of the deepening and development of practice. And it's only our conditioning and the colonized way this, uh, this uh, uh, Western country that we live in points us toward there being something wrong when these arise in our mind as opposed to it's the natural occurrence of clearing mind. It's the natural occurrence of becoming gathered. It's the natural occurrence of settling in and living in the space of presence. It is, necessary, it is a necessary progression of practice to investigate the forces of distraction and agitation with the utmost care and honor. For they lay before us the opportunity to break through the cloud of confusion and reactivity that our minds frequently dwell in. We must understand their true nature and how they work as it is much easier to find freedom from something when we know it thoroughly. That's being spoken to throughout our days and time together in relationship. Um, Eugene and Tawari have been using the word nourishment. I think that came out of a speaking that Nolita had with us as colleagues when we were having a meal. But in addition to what I what I'd like to add in is that in addition to this this nourishment and this becoming intimate, this other distinction of becoming familiar. So sometimes we can be intimate with things without really acknowledging and having familiarity about it. So this studying, this uh, I won't say embracing, but this meeting of the hindrances with some welcomeness as it points to, oh, this is a place where I'm not yet done. I need to do some work here. Thank goodness for that. Any of you who have become practiced at something, whether it's playing an instrument or singing or um, even in our jobs, you know, technicians or whatever it is that we're doing, whatever the uh, um, vehicle for practice has made a difference, know that oftentimes you learn the most by the things that don't work out. You got to figure it out, you know, so you can hit that note, so you can cross that finish line, so that you can get all the uh, negatives and positives meeting up the way they're supposed to meet up. So the five hindrances, uh, which I just named, but I'm going to go a little bit more into detail about them at this moment are these workings of the mind, these thoughts that hinder our ability to see clearly and our capacity to develop a stable, concentrated mind. First, there's sensual desire, sometimes known as worldly desire. The mind wanting something pleasurable, grasping after sense objects, and this particular hindrance is driven um, by the sense doors. It keeps the mind looking outward, searching after this object or that in an agitated and unbalanced way. Sensual desire can be for food, comfort, physical and sexual experiences, sounds, smells, sights, and other sense pleasures. It is the very nature of sense desires that they can never be satisfied. There is no end to the seeking. Living without wants, wishes, experiences, motivations, aspirations is impossible. 
desires that often arise with meditators, and I heard a lot of them today, is it's too cold, it's too hot, there's too much noise in the hall, I can't walk up and down the hill, I'm hungry, I'm tired. The mind in action railing against how things are in this moment. And it's actually the resistance to how things are that keeps the things in place. As, a la- as opposed to being able to move through us, wash over us, land in the position where we're able to let it go. To approach freedom, we must emphasize skillful desire and distinguish the healthy, useful desires from the unhealthy ones. We become wise about harmful desires and understand the more we value freedom and its pleasures, the more likely freedom guides us in deciding which desires or aspirations we allow to guide our lives. Another way of saying this is that we become more familiar and more grounded in knowing what moves us towards an increase in suffering, unskillful means, versus what moves us towards the lessening of suffering, skillful means, and kind of living out of that, living by that. Then there's ill will or aversion. The mind is filled with dislike. The condemning mind, anger, fury, resentment, hatred, annoyance, aversion, irritation. Feel the energy hitting your bodies with those words. Vexation, loathing, spite, resistance, avoidance, criticalness, boredom, complaining, grudge and fearfulness. Who wants to carry that? Doesn't sound very pleasant. It is the mind that strikes against the object and wants to get rid of it. The mind is burning with desire or burning up. Wisdom is acquired through familiarity and one of the tasks in mindfulness practice is to become familiar with the hindrances. With ill will, this requires a willingness to shift attention away from whatever we are hostile towards and instead turn it towards the experience of ill will itself. So making the hindrance, and in this particular case, speaking to ill will, the object for inquiry, the object for investigation And some of you, this came up in in, in meetings today, and we're going to get there. But before we can get there, really, it's it's really um, a kindness that we can offer ourselves to really spend the time to cultivate the qualities of mind that will support inquiry, that will support investigation. So here in our early days, in our first couple of days, really wanting to um, move to that position where you actually can see the hindrances working or in action. At this point, that may be enough because once we move to trying to get rid of them or squash them down, then we enter into the land of aversion. And then that sets up a whole nother series of uh, circuitous uh, suffering that makes it difficult to remove oneself from. It can be useful to be mindful of it in a non-judgmental and non-reactive way. It can be helpful to hold the ill will in our focus without acting on it or pushing it away. Being mindful of how ill will feels physically. Examine the beliefs that underlie the ill will How do we believe aversion will be beneficial or justified? What assumptions do we believe about how things are supposed to be? What might ill will be covering? Frustrated desire? 
fear, embarrassment, with no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. The Buddha said that letting go of ill will or hate is like recovering from an illness. I had this experience on uh, the plane coming here, so you all knew I flew in from New Jersey. That's a six hour and 15 minute flight. And when I got on the plane and sat down at my seat, I looked across the aisle and there was a family of a mom, a dad, and a maybe 10 month old. And I felt the aversion <laughs> starting to kick in, took a breath, I said, okay, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be the way I'm projecting it's gonna mean. And then for the next six hours, this baby girl went for it for the, almost the whole six hours. And I said to myself after about a half hour, okay, well, I'm not, I can't, six hours of this not going to work for me. So I got to do something about this. And so I actually then turned my attention out of my own discomfort to the what I imagined would be the discomfort of the parents and started cultivating some compassion for them that they had this baby girl that was just communicating whatever it was she was communicating and how that must be for them knowing how the average human being responds to that kind of circumstance. And then as, uh, in, and in between her crying, she would stop for 10 or 15 minutes and she'd be smiling and cute baby, really cute baby. So then I started to focus on that. Oh, look at this being that just entered the world and is really trying to make sense of it and whatever's going on for her in this moment, this is the only way she has of expressing it. And interestingly enough, what I started to notice, she still cried for six hours, but it start, I didn't hear it after a while. It really started to, to move further and further away from me. Sometimes we don't really uh, gain full understanding and clarity about a condition or a circumstance until there's the absence of it. So because I had kicked in the awareness when uh, she, maybe she was still crying. I don't know. I mean, I know she was still crying because it went in and out, but it wasn't grating on me. The aversion was not there, and I only really felt a whole lot of compassion for this family, for the mom, the dad, and the baby girl. Therefore, transferring some of that over to myself and having a pretty good flight. I looked at three movies on the way up here. Entertained myself. Then there's sloth and torpor. And I heard a lot. So just show of hands, how many people in here have been working with sleepiness? Oh, look at that. So I want you all to see that in terms of the normalization of process. You all are in a process, and that is one of the pretty normative components of this process. So I, you know, I, I've come to determine for myself in terms of teaching these retreats, when, when folks come in on that first day talking about I'm tired and oh, this, what's wrong and why can't, I'm like, you're really, you maybe you're like really tired. Right? <laughs> like all this analytic and comparing and judging, it's like, go take a nap and then come back and talk to me about how things are in this moment. And increasingly so, you know, I think it's a condition of our culture these days right now that nervous systems come in very overwrought. That you all arrived already very overwrought. And I was saying this in one of my groups today that the body knowledge in our life outside in the world, the body knowledge is really the only time we, whenever we stop 
It means it's time to go to sleep. Like that's the conditioning of this body. So here you come on this retreat. There's silence. You know, you don't have to think about too much in terms of food and cooking or whether you make up your bed or not. Like you can just be. You know, and so the body's saying, oh, must be time to relax, must be time to go to sleep. <laughs> and this is a place where you can bring in discernment. You know, play with it. See, I, I think I told, I don't know if I said this in the group, but I was saying to somebody um, that earlier on when I would treat, sloth and torpor was one of the things that accompanied me. And when I realized this distinction of uh, discernment was when I was, I was sitting in the hall and I was just nodding away. And I said, okay, next, as soon as this sits over, I'm going to go and I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to lay down. And I went to my room and I laid down and within two minutes I wasn't sleeping. I was alert. I was like, oh, the mind was busy. Like, what can I get into? That was a moment of discernment. Like, oh, no, nah, that's not tired. I was resisting something or there was some mind state of sloth and torpor uh, encasing or grabbing or welling up and arising in this mind. So you got to play with it. Don't stop at the first assumption. Really take a look. And with these hindrances, just like we've been offering, you can work with pain or you can work with judgment. You work with the hindrances in the same way. Jump in there and explore. What does it feel like in the body? What is it, what is it, how is it manifesting in the mind? What are the qualities? And really start to unpack or deconstruct these experiences. One, the more familiar you become with it, the more you'll be able to kind of, as I'll say, head it off at the pass. Like as the arising begins will be able to implement some of these practice tools that you're learning and practicing as a way to resolve and transform, not avoid and resist. So sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor are forces in the mind that drain vitality and limit effort. Sloth manifests as a physical absence of vitality. The body may feel heavy, lethargic, weak. When this hindrance is strong, there's not even enough mindfulness to know we have fallen into it. Sloth and torpor refers to low energy states related to an attitude we are holding. Discouragement, frustration, boredom, indifference, giving up, hopelessness and resistance are some of the mind states that cause sloth and torpor. Although sloth and torpor may be present, it does not mean energy is not available, but just that we are not accessing it. Our evaluations and reactions lead to lethargy. Learning how to mindfully watch our thoughts instead of actively participating in them can effectively stop them from draining our energy. The fourth hindrance, and they're not necessarily in a hierarchy, it's just a good way to be able to speak of them. But they move in and out and there's no hierarchy, although hopefully one of the things you will come to discover is if you have an inclination towards any of them. Like for me, I know doubt is one of the ones that more often than not shows up and that I work with. So restlessness and worry. The mind is too anxious to stay steady. Regret, agitation, jumping from one object to another without any mindfulness. Restlessness and worry are states of over-excitement. In order to meditate, we have to be calm. Restlessness and worry are kind of oppositional to that. So we really want to work with it. Worry is very often concerned with the future and our wish that it should be as we plan. Restlessness is connected to our search for satisfaction 
in the outside world. Watching too much TV, the internet, our phones, all contribute to an increased sense of restlessness. Thus, um, uh, the, the, the energetic invitation we gave for turning in technology, cell phones, computers, an attempt to create a supportive environment for this work that we're up to. Restlessness often arises from the fact that we are not getting what we want. Restlessness and worry are always connected to desire. Releasing tension or constriction in breathing can be relaxing when this hindrance is up. The more attention given to breathing, the less attention is available to fuel restlessness and worry. Dissatisfaction, frustrated desire, and pent-up aversion are also common causes of agitation. Being mindful of the cause is helpful and not so much focusing on the agitation. When pain is the cause of restlessness, the pain should be addressed. When thinking is a big part of restlessness, it can be useful to relax the thinking muscle. So one of the things about um, pain and restlessness, um, this is related to the question that was asked this morning, in addition to um, the response that came from the front of the room, you know, it's, it's, as it was said, it's fine to move if that's what's needed if that's what's helpful, if that's what's the most useful. And this is true of physical pain as well as emotional pain. However, in making that decision, in taking that choice to move away from the pain um, in a mindful way, not in an aversive way, that subtle little difference makes all the difference in the capacity and ability to start um, really resolving or titrating down the impact and effect of these hindrances. So then there's doubt, skeptical doubt, a lack of faith that you can stay mindful of what is true and to act skillfully. Doubt freezes the mind and undercuts our ability to cope with all the other hindrances. What am I doing here? Why did I come? I can't do this. It's too hard. Doubt distances us from the present moment. So bringing mindfulness to bear can be helpful in shifting from doubt. Doubt prevents us from experiencing tranquility. So the first two hindrances are related by being opposite qualities, desire and ill will. They are both forms of wanting, although opposite sides of the same coin. Desire seeks to have something, whereas ill will wants to push something away. In a similar way, the third and fourth hindrances are related by being opposite qualities. They both relate to or involve levels of energy or vitality. Sloth and torpor are low energy states while restlessness and worry are high energy states. The fifth hindrance, doubt, is not specifically connected to any of the others. However, doubt is often entwined with any combination of the other hindrances and can and does cast its influence in many ways on our whole being. Mindfulness practice returns the mind to a free state. If we purify the mind of the hindrances, then the mind is no longer stiff and rigid. It becomes fluid 
and can be shaped into something beautiful. The hindrances can also be seen as strategies we use when we are challenged or uncomfortable. So these are strategies that over time, um, at some point, you know, uh, when we're growing up under the auspices of all this culture and society has to offer in terms of judgment, in terms of self-criticism, in terms of uh, the puritanism and perfectionism and on and on and on. You all know what I'm talking about. We develop these strategies for navigating and negotiating through life. But these strategies, although when first developed may be helpful or useful in supporting us in moving through difficulty and challenges as we become more and more um, hmm, dissatisfied uh, with life and the outcomes that we're getting no longer serve us. So there's also this um, awareness of working with the hindrances that uh, provide an opportunity for forward movement yeah, and for a more uh, gradual and deepening understanding of the magnificence of who we really are. So remember, all the hindrances are impermanent mental factors that arise in the mind from conditioning. They arise and pass away like clouds in the sky. However, when we are caught in the web of not seeing, we believe they are fixed and permanent. If we are mindful of them when they arise and do not react or identify with them, they pass through the mind without creating any disturbance. Ajahn Sumedho, who is one of, uh, uh, in this lineage, one of the monastics, uh, who's done a great deal of uh, writing and teaching, a big contributor to much of what you're hearing over these days that we're together, says, letting go is leaving things as they are. It does not mean that we annihilate them or throw them away. If we contemplate desires and listen to them, we are actually no longer attaching to them. He likens clinging to holding a clock in our hand for a long period of time until it becomes heavy and the arm begins to ache. If he tells you to let go of the clock to relieve your discomfort, he is not telling you to throw it away. It's a perfectly good clock, one that is easy to travel with and keeps good time. Therefore, the clock is not the problem. Your grasping is... Putting the clock down will relieve your arm from cramping, free up your hand, give you more energy for other things. But it wasn't the clock itself that was causing your suffering, only that you did not know to put it down. In life, we all inevitably have many goals, and they will determine how we spend our time but there is a distinction between acting according to what one values and being attached to the outcome of that action. Then there are also unwholesome desires, which the Buddha says are like holding a hot coal that we would immediately drop. For instance, wishing someone ill will out of jealousy or wanting to harm another person because we want revenge. And there's a wide spectrum of what that means. So no, you may not be sitting up there thinking about killing somebody. But I can imagine some thoughts that are these darts and arrows being directed towards others or ourselves. Oftentimes, we are well aware that we are clinging to hot coals and are able to work with releasing them. However, we have a much more difficult time abandoning our clinging to wholesome desires, such as wanting good health, because it looks good. looks like we're doing the right thing. But we can get obsessive and contracted and 
challenged and out of balance, even in terms of things that are good for us and ways of living that are helpful. So how do we practice abandoning? One of the best ways is with mindfulness, using mindfulness to clearly see what is true from one right now. The first step is to separate desire from attachment to it. Then examine the desire itself. See how it is related to the arising of pleasant or unpleasant feelings. And you'll be hearing more about that over the course of the next few days. Observe whether the desire is based in the present or if it is linked to the future or the past. Be interested in the energy of the desire and how it propels the mind in various directions. Notice whether any images or words accompany the desire. Is there a little movie running in your head about the outcome? Is the desire an end in itself, a way to entertain yourself, or the result of wanting something so that you can be the star of the soap opera of your life? Examine the story that accompanies the clinging to outcome and the drama it creates in the mind. Observe how narrow the mind becomes when it is clinging. Be interested in any obsessive and repetitive thought patterns and notice how they drain your energy. Ask yourself if this clinging is suffering or not suffering. Separate the desire itself from the clinging to have the desire fulfilled. Spiritual development through mindfulness allows us to expand or transform desire into love. This is liberation. Freedom from suffering around one's desire that the past be different than it was and that the future turn out a certain way. If we are fully present in the sacred now, suffering is transformed into joy. So in coming to a close, there's two things I want to bring forward. One of them is I want to um, read you a little bit about a process Joseph Goldstein writes about in his working with judgment. And I'm going to read directly uh, what he says. Because kind of at the base or the foundation of a lot of the difficulty of working with the hindrances and any of the greed, aversion, delusion, any of the components of unskillful means that we're investigating and seeing arise is this uh, tendency, this conditioning towards judging, this assessing that we do that something is wrong, something is bad. So Joseph Goldstein offers these three techniques for changing our relationship to the judging mind. He says that a couple of them are homegrown, meaning you're not going to find them in any Buddhist text, but that he developed them as a result of him grappling with judgment in his own practice. I experienced these discomforting patterns of judging thoughts very clearly once when I was doing intensive meditation practice in a retreat. I found myself sitting in a place in the dining room of our meditation center where I could watch everyone coming in and take food. Although I was ostensibly being mindful of eating, out of not quite the corner of my eye, I saw everything that was going on. I was quite amazed to see how my mind had a judgment about every single person who came in. I did not like either how people walked, not mindful enough, or how much food they took, that's too much, or how they were eating, or what they were wearing. It became quite disconcerting to watch that overflow of judgments in my mind. 
I reacted to this new awareness by becoming quite upset, first condemning all these judgments as quite bad thoughts, and then judging myself as bad for having them. Over some time, it became clear to me that judging the judging is not helping at all. The first skillful method for dealing with judgment is the old tried and true traditional method of clear mindfulness. I made an effort to notice specifically how the pattern was manifesting, noting the cascade of judging thoughts with clear awareness. By cultivating mindfulness in this way, I experienced less identification with the thoughts. But extraordinary circumstances sometimes call for extraordinary measures, so I also evolved two other less orthodox ways of working with the judgments. First, I started counting the judgments as they arose. Every time a judging thought came into my mind, I would count judging one, judging two, judging three, judging 500. At a certain point, I started to laugh. I began to see these bad thoughts in a much lighter way not particularly believing them and not reacting against them. A judgment arises, we can see it, we smile, and we let it go. What a breath of fresh air for the mind. The second technique I used when these thoughts proliferated was to tack on to the end of each judgment the phrase, the sky is blue. That person takes too much food, the sky is blue. I don't like how they're moving. The sky is blue. The sky is blue is a neutral thought that can just come and go without any reaction in the mind. By adding it to the end of every judgment, I got a sense of what it would be like to let the judgment go through my mind in just the same way the blue sky goes through. So instead of fighting or struggling with the judgments or other very repetitive thought patterns, Instead of trying to make them stop coming, we can learn how not to react, how not to be bothered by them, and even how to smile. Try it with one of your own most bothersome patterns. Self-hatred 1, self-hatred 2, self-hatred 595, self-hatred 10,000. At a certain point, you're going to start smiling. That smile will signal a very important transformation in how you relate to your stuff. The stuff is empty. It does not belong to anybody. It is not rooted in self, which feeds it is our relationship to it. What feeds it is our relationship to it. We don't like it. And precisely because we don't like it, it keeps coming back. At a certain point, we stop not liking it then it is no problem. I have watched some of the most appalling scenarios in my mind. There they are arising and are passing. If we relate to them in a non-reactive, non-identified way, their content does not matter. Tremendous freedom comes when we realize that from the perspective of mindful awareness, the content is irrelevant. With practice, mindfulness eventually becomes stronger than the power of the hindrances. Choosing to be mindful of a hindrance is a significant move towards being free of it. One of the most significant turning points in practice with the hindrances is when we choose freedom over being hindered. Let the practice release your heart from fear. Let the quieting of your mind and the clear seeing of the truth release you from confusion and clinging. Let understanding and acceptance of the way things are in this moment flower the fruit of your wisdom.
Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment. Time for walking. If there's energy, continued practicing in this form. Because remember, we're working on continuous practicing, whether you're moving towards the bed or coming back in the room for the 9 o'clock sit. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.